2: Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK.
0: What you can expect if this war moves on is going to be more than catastrophic in the fall. You think we've got hell on earth now, you you just get ready.
1: Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politics Editor at Politico in Brussels. And you just heard words of warning from David Beasley. He's the Executive Director of the UN's World Food Programme. You'll hear more from Beasley later in the podcast about the impact that Russia's war in Ukraine is having on global food supplies and prices, and about the knock-on effects that could have in terms of instability and social unrest around the world. But we Before we get to that, we're going to reflect on Joe Biden's recent trip to Europe for a trio of summits and preview a pivotal general election in Hungary, where Prime Minister Viktor Orban, the man accused by the EU of democratic backsliding, is running for another term. So it's a warm welcome to our podcast panel. Uh, Joining me in person this week in our brand new Brussels studio, Chief Europe Correspondent Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. hello. Hello. Good to see you in person and remote this week from Budapest, where she's preparing to cover the Hungarian parliamentary election, our Brussels politics reporter Lily Bayer. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. Um, So I thought we would start with a brief recap of uh, something that we talked about a bit last week, but it was uh, just unfolding as we recorded, and that was the visit of Joe Biden, the three summits that we had here in Brussels, European Council, G7 and NATO, all involving Joe Biden, of course, all focused on the war in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine. And then we'll come on to the Hungarian election in a moment. Uh, But one of the things, Matt, I wanted to bring up with you is I thought I'll let you off a little bit easy last week on strategic autonomy uh, where you were dismissing uh, the idea as dead when it comes to particularly Europeans stepping up when it comes to their own defence and um, you were obviously pointing out that uh, a lot of allies were running for the skirts of America as I believe you put it, in yes, the United right, States under the skirts. Okay um, but the point I think which was came up actually in Joe Biden's press conference raised by a journalist from a publication I know you always enjoy reading, Der Spiegel bringing up the point that maybe it's okay to be relying on the US now but what if Donald Trump or a similar figure comes back?
3: Concerns in Europe that um, a figure like your predecessor, maybe even your predecessor himself might uh, get elected president again. Um, so um, aren't the
1: are Europeans right think, to be stepping up and thinking more about being able to defend themselves?
4: I think the Europeans are right to do whatever they want. If that's what they want to actually do, then, you know, I would be the first one to welcome that, actually. I mean, I would uh, celebrate the uh, last American troop uh, leaving European soil, to be honest. I just don't see it happening because there's just not enough coordination in Europe at the moment, and they just don't really have the ability to fend for themselves. And this is particularly true... Of Germany, which has just announced that it's going to spend 100 billion euros. Nobody really knows how they're going to spend that in such a short time. They're talking about over the next four years, and they've kind of put out these grand plans to order F 35 American fighter planes and all this kind of thing. But they're not going to even get those planes if they were to order them tomorrow until the end of the decade at the earliest. So I think it's just worth a bit of a reality check here that Germany does not have a military that is capable of defending their country the top general in the German Bundeswehr said this recently said we're standing here naked they have 243 battle tanks many of which are not operable so it's just it's just not feasible that's the problem right
1: but isn't the aspiration or the idea that they should be thinking more seriously about it uh, doesn't that have some merit
4: it does but it takes decades To build a military. And I think that any force in Europe would have to have a very strong German contingent. And I would argue that the real problem in the Bundeswehr is not the fact that they don't have enough gear, which is clearly a problem, but it is more the mentality in Germany that all things military are slightly suspect. And uh, there's no kind of quick fix to any of these problems. This will take decades.
1: Lily, before we come on to Hungary, um, any thoughts from you just reflecting on those three uh, summits that we all covered together at the end of last week? Uh, you were at the, the NATO one. We also had the European Council and the, and the G7. What were your impressions from, from those summits and Joe Biden's appearance?
5: My impression is that there were no big surprises in terms of policy, but that there was a big effort to show transatlantic unity. So um, at the NATO summits, the leaders formally said that they are establishing four additional multinational battle groups in uh, Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania, and Slovakia. They also repeated that they condemn Russia's invasion and that they stand together and are reinforcing the eastern flank of the alliance. Um, So I think it was an important moment, especially for eastern members to feel reassured. But uh, in terms of concrete policy, uh, we didn't see a lot that's new.
1: Right. It felt in some ways uh, there was a lot of symbolism. But uh, as we were uh, discussing just before we started recording, actually some of the concrete demands that uh, President Zelensky made to the summits, he addressed all three summits with tailored speeches. Some of the demands that he made in terms of military aid, he was talking about tanks. He was talking about basically NATO giving 1% of its military hardware to Ukraine. And he asked again for fighter jets. Uh, You know, there's no sign of that happening. But for President Zelensky, very interestingly, in his European Council address, and this, I think, is another example of how good the Ukrainian government has been at communications. He had a very tailored speech where he addressed European leaders individually as he was uh, addressing the whole group by video link and uh, that speech was put up online with subtitles and there was a transcript in excellent English so it was widely shared very quickly and one of the leaders he singled out for criticism, in fact I would say the leader that he singled out for criticism, was Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Lily, what was the Gist of what he was saying in terms of his criticism of Orban.
5: It was quite a dramatic moment, as he said, very tailored to the Hungarian situation. Zelensky turned to Orban and said, You have to decide for yourself who you are with. And he told Orban: Listen, Victor, do you know what's going on in Mariupol?
6: ласка.
5: He even referred directly to a monument on the banks of the Danube River to Jews who were shot into the river during World War II. So it was a very, very dramatic, emotional moment. And um, interestingly, I was on on a train in in Hungary this week, and I, I was walking down the aisle, and I saw a lady looking on her phone at a Zelensky speech. So people in Hungary are paying attention.
1: So the essence of the criticism here is that, well, first of all, we know that uh, Viktor Orban has cultivated close relations with Vladimir Putin. He has also gone along with EU sanctions, for example, but he, when it comes to military aid, for example, he has said that it can't pass through Hungarian territory. So it does feel like he's trying to play both sides much more than just about any other European leader I can think of. How is that going down in Hungary? Because that would obviously be, you know, politically pretty much suicidal in in a lot of European countries, if you were trying to kind of equivocate like that in in this case.
5: It's really a fascinating situation because it seems like Hungarian society is very polarised on this question. So there's actually been some polling this month. And it looks like, a part of Orbán's base is actually buying into his narrative that Hungary shouldn't be neither pro-Ukrainian nor pro-Russian and that um, a lot of his own supporters, the Fidesz base, is okay uh, with his approach to the war and this this narrative of, of, of staying out, staying away, not providing weapons to neighboring Ukraine. On the other side, we have opposition voters and some Fidesz voters who are, um, of course, quite upset and would like to see Hungary taking a much stronger, harsher stance on Russia's invasion.
1: Okay, and I think we can hear from someone in the Orban camp giving their summary of their policy. Who who are we going to hear from here?
5: Uh, This is Minister Gergely Guyash, who serves as Orban's chief of
3: staff so we condemn the russian aggression against uh, ukraine the question is uh, what uh, have to be the reaction of the european union and uh, uh, we condemned uh, the russian aggression we support uh, we supported the sanction which was uh, decided by the european union uh, and um, i think so that we are a loyal member of the european union and the nato so uh, and in the hungarian campaign i I think that the, the decision of the Hungarian government uh, uh, is popular and uh, and good. Therefore, I, I, I think that the, if it will influence the election, it will be good for the government.
5: So you disagree with your critics who say that the Hungarian government should take a stronger stance like, for example, Poland or the Czech Republic?
3: I think it's not true. So the common sense is very important and uh, the common sense that if we would like to uh, make or decide about sanction uh, we, it's necessary there are necessary sanctions but the sanctions have to uh, have to find the Russians and not Europe. That's the, the gap between the opinions. Thank
5: you so much.
1: Lily perhaps you can introduce a couple of voices from the uh, opposition in terms of how they see the war in Ukraine and its effect on this campaign.
5: This is Klara Dobrev, a member of the European Parliament and a leading candidate for the Left Liberal Democratic Coalition.
2: The war in Ukraine and the Russian aggression changed a lot of things. Uh, and it even increased the, the, the feeling of insecurity in the people. So we definitely have to give answers uh, to these new challenges. And the answer of the United Opposition is Europe and NATO, that the only way how you can secure peace and stability in the country is by being strongly a NATO ally and strong member of the European Union. So now in Sunday it's going to be Orbán or Europe. That's
5: the vote. Uh, so, and we hope that people- this is Anna Donat, a member of the European Parliament, who is the head of the Momentum Party.
6: War just made it even more obvious that people are afraid of how they're going to come out of their salary at the, by the end of the month, uh, how the inflation uh, raises like increasing like crazy. And they know that war means economical crisis as well. And right now they are be afraid what's going to happen. I and mean, everybody is afraid about that. So these are basically the main issues made
1: uh, Okay, so one of the interesting things about this election, Lily, is that the Hungarian opposition has come together in an unprecedented way. You've got a real range of parties, right, from across the spectrum coming together to form an alliance to try and defeat Viktor Orban. Tell us who's at the top of the ticket there. And uh, I believe you've been speaking to him as well. So give us a flavour of what he's been saying about the campaign and also the effect of the war on it.
5: The opposition's lead candidate for prime minister is Petar Markizoy, uh, the mayor of the uh, town of Hodmezer-Bashad-He. He is a conservative father of seven, and he was chosen by voters during a primary in the fall to lead the ticket. Uh, this was quite an unusual choice to pick a conservative to lead an alliance that is very diverse. It is made up of liberals, left-wingers, uh, socialists, greens, and even members of the right-wing Jobbik Party. So it's a six-party coalition with this mayor at the top of the ticket. I spoke to Mark Hizai outside a market in the town of Solnok, where he was addressing a crowd of supporters on the very last week of the election campaign. <laughs> So you talked a lot during this appearance here in Solnok about the uneven playing field. You told people to talk to their friends and their relatives. Do you think it's still possible to win, and what are the challenges? Yeah,
6: absolutely possible. Yeah, the challenge is that yes, we have to talk to the people in person. They have to talk to their friends and relatives in person because Fidesz rules ninety percent of the media, uh, more than ninety percent of all advertisement surfaces, and you know, pretty much you know there's. The brainwashing going on for 12 years in Hungary. So it's pretty hard to counter that brainwashing. It's a miracle sign of the resilience of the Hungarian people that after 12 years of such brainwashing, we still have a chance to win on on April 3rd, this Sunday. Thank and
5: you. what is the impact of the invasion of Ukraine?
6: You know, at first in the first few days, you know, we noticed that people want security and they expect Orban to be able to protect them. Now we had to tell that Orban is enabled You know, only NATO can protect Hungary, not Orban. Orban always wanted to stop Brussels, the EU. Now we all have to stop Putin in order to live in peace. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much.
1: Okay, Lily, maybe just give us a sense of the challenge facing the opposition here, um, because this is not the kind of election that you would experience in a lot of Western European countries, let's put it that way. What kind of obstacles are they facing beyond just the traditional ones that any opposition would face when they're up against the incumbents in a general election?
5: Orban's critics, as well as a lot of international observers, have raised concerns that the playing field in this election is incredibly uneven. So just to give you a sense, the opposition's lead candidate, Markizai, got a total of five minutes to speak on state television during this campaign, illegally mandated five minutes, whereas Prime Minister Orban has clips of him speaking all the time, every single day. In addition, a lot of the state funded and pro government media um, is not allowing a lot of opposition voices and is running a lot of content that is very critical and at times even factually incorrect about the opposition's
4: policy positions.
1: Mm. Matt, anything you want to ask Lily or um, discuss with her on the Hungarian campaign?
4: Well, it just sounds to me, Lily, you know, like this is kind of the fruition of everything that we've been seeing and talking about for the last several years, that Orban has completely rigged the entire system in Hungary into his favor. And so we're at the stage where he, he literally can't lose.
5: I wouldn't say that he can't lose. One thing that Marquise, I did note is that it is almost surprising that the opposition has done as well as it has, given these many, many limitations. Um, they've been doing a lot of very old school campaigning, standing in the streets, in the marketplaces, shaking hands, talking to people one by one. They've also been trying to use social media But this may not be enough. And uh, it has to be mentioned that there are, of course, internal divisions within this coalition, which also make it harder for them to really rally. I spoke with some of the opposition candidates about the challenge of working together across the political divides with such a diverse group
6: of opposition politicians. Yes, it is not a... It is a forced marriage, to be honest. We all know it. It doesn't mean we can be civilised and it, it doesn't mean that we can't find the common uh, po- uh, common basis. Um, we could. A lot of things divides us. But if you're focusing on what connects us, we can change this government. And actually,
1: in- OK, well, we'll see how the election plays out. Uh, we will have preview pieces from Lily on our website, politico.eu, and you'll be able to follow the results and the aftermath on the site on Sunday evening. But for now, uh, Lily, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after this short break, you'll hear the compelling warning from the World Food Programme's Executive Director David Beasley about the state of global food supply which is being exacerbated by Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Stay with us.
2: Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade.
1: Now it's time to turn our attention to a different aspect of the war in Ukraine, the knock-on effect the war is having on food prices and the availability of food.
0: You know, we've got catastrophe on top of catastrophe uh, globally. Ukraine is, uh, you know, catastrophe on top of the perfect storm we already had.
1: That's David Beasley. He's the executive director of the UN's World Food Programme. He's served in that role since 2017 and has a long history of working on projects that are trying to tackle the world's biggest problems. Before that, he was a Republican politician in his home state of South Carolina in the United States, where he served as governor from 1995 to 1999. Beasley was in Brussels last week and he spoke to Politico's agriculture reporter, Eddie Wax, who joins us now. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Andrew. So Eddie Beasley is making reference there to a perfect storm of events uh, colliding at the moment and impacting global food supply. Why exactly does he say that?
7: Well, that's because uh, global food prices were already pretty much at their at their highest level for years, um, thanks to the COVID crisis, which has pushed up inflation. And then on top of that, you have one of the breadbaskets of the world, certainly the breadbasket of Europe, Ukraine being invaded and having all its export routes completely cut off by the Russian aggression. So it's not that there is less food in the world necessarily right now, as there was before, but it's the fact that Ukraine's massive agricultural exports have been cut off and Ukraine was feeding 400 million people, um, which is pretty much 10 times its own population size.
0: Before Ukraine, we were already seeing price hikes, shipping costs, fuel costs. We were already seeing a perfect storm because of conflict, climate and COVID. The number of people, I say marching to starvation, that's not chronic hunger, that's 800 million people. I mean, people that are in shock emergency need and if they don't get it they'll either die migrate or destabilize the nation those are these are the factors that create a lot of problems that number went from 135 right before covid to 276 million people that's before ukraine
1: Okay, so Beasley's saying that's the situation even before the war. What's the outlook now Explain to us in what particular ways uh, the war makes the supply and the prices of food more of a problem?
7: Well, maybe to firstly start off, it's important to know what Ukraine actually produces. So Ukraine has a third of the world's most fertile soils, and it uses that uh, black soil to produce huge amounts of sunflowers, of corn, and of wheat as well. Now, wheat is the thing which is the most important uh, commodity in the short term because that's what people eat. It's not just fed to farm animals. It's, it's the staple of many people's diets in the Middle East and in North Africa. And those regions, of course, are where, well, certainly the Middle East is where we saw the, the Arab Spring. And leading up to that, uh, there was a lot of political instability. And some of that political instability was caused by protests about the price of food and the rising price of food. And we're seeing prices rising there because of the market situation, because of inflation. And Beasley was even telling me last week that he thinks the situation there economically is now worse than it was in the run-up to the Arab Spring. So the worry here is that it's going to be a chain reaction. You're going to have problems with people affording food, struggling to afford food in some of these regions. That's going to lead to political instability. And that political instability, Beasley was warning, could end up on the shores of Europe. It could lead to huge migration flows towards Europe.
0: What you can expect if this war moves on is going to be more than catastrophic in the fall. In the fall? Oh yeah. You think we've got hell on earth now, you, you just get ready.
1: Okay, so why is he specifically talking about the fall there?
7: Well, I think he's talking about the fall, as he, as he later explained to me, because that's when the real impact of the harvest in Ukraine will, will be seen. Um, farmers are planting crops now, such as maize and other spring crops like spring barley, but those will be harvested around the summer and maybe starting to be properly exported in, in, in the autumn, uh, in the fall. So that's when we're going to really see whether Ukraine's farmers have actually managed to do their job this year remembering, of course, that most of them, pretty much all of them, have been taken onto the front lines and they've been called up to fight in the army. Needless to say, there's going to be massive shortages of fertilizers, of pesticides, of fuel and all sorts of things that have been requisitioned by the army. So the actual capacity of Ukraine to produce food this year is really hanging in the balance, I think.
0: Hmm.
1: So he's had some pretty dramatic words of warning. And it's not um, the first time that he's used that kind of language. In fact, he was um, using some of that language, I think, even before the war. But what's his main ask now? What is he saying that the world, the European Union needs to step up and do to try and deal with this crisis?
7: He's essentially a fundraiser. I mean, that's what I, I put to him. I said, your job is basically to raise money now from the EU and from EU countries. And he he didn't disagree with that. That's why he came to Brussels. He attended something called the European Humanitarian Forum, where lots of big bigwigs were discussing uh, humanitarian policy and, and development policy. But he's basically asking for lots and lots of more money, not only so that he can help Ukraine, the World Food Programme is trying to feed around 3 million people in and around Ukraine, but it's also so that they can keep the money flowing and the food aid flowing to other parts of the world, to poorer parts of the world, where he even warned that in countries which are already ravaged by conflict, such as Yemen, food rations are even going to have to be cut and even have already been cut actually in Yemen, he said, uh, in order to keep feeding more and more refugees leaving Ukraine.
1: Okay, so he's asking, I think, for an additional $8 billion uh, overall. And the idea is that that money would be used to keep feeding the people they are feeding, particularly in poorer parts of the world. And that in turn, averts a crisis, right?
7: Absolutely. But even to stand still, the costs are going up for the WFP That's due to inflation. I think he said if inflation hadn't bitten as hard as it has in, in, in the last couple of years, they'd be able to feed four million extra people per year. But that's the number that, that are going to not be fed by the WFP if David Beasley's budget doesn't increase.
0: You've watched it, what happens when we don't have availability of food uh, in developing nations. You have, you have destabilisation rights and protests. What do you think is going to happen in Paris and Chicago in uh, Brussels when there's not enough food. And it's, e- and it's easy to sit on your high horse in your ivory tower uh, when you're not the one starving.
1: So that's his plea. And what are the European Union, European governments saying in response to that? Are they uh, Do they accept his argument and are they going to step up with more money?
7: Well, that's hard to say. There hasn't been a rush of EU politicians falling over themselves to pledge more money. That's certain. I mean, one of the problems in Europe is the fact that the budget is set uh, once every seven years. It's not something which is constantly rehashed. I think nothing would function if that was the case. But the fact is that when I spoke to the European Commission, they said that, uh, well, they are already the third biggest single funder of the World Food Programme. And they said that there's 2.5 billion euros earmarked for food aid coming up in the next few years already. But it doesn't seem like they're going to pledge a huge wad of fresh cash. Of course, the money doesn't just come from the EU itself. It comes from individual member countries of the EU. So Germany is the second biggest single donor after the US. The commission itself comes in third spot. Obviously, that money comes uh, mostly from the member states themselves. But not all EU countries are pulling their weight uh, to the same extent. You know, I think some of the eastern countries and southern countries are contributing less relative to their actual size. And France, uh, two years ago, donated less than half of what Russia contributed.
0: If you want starvation, destabilisation nations and mass migration with an infiltration in Northern Africa from ISIS and Al-Qaeda, don't fund us. If you want that, that's all you got to do. Don't fund us.
1: So he's obviously talking a lot about some of the more unstable parts of the world there. Is that where um, the crisis stops? And he's talking about a kind of, if you like, uh, instability from there being imported into Europe, but is there also potential crisis in terms of food prices, uh, food availability within Europe?
7: There's not going to be a crisis in terms of food availability. That's very important. And I think uh, you know the, the European Commission is in a little bit of a bind here, because they're announcing a big spate of new measures, as they did last week, to deal with the, the food-related problems coming from this crisis. But at the same time, despite announcing all these, all these new measures, they have to be very clear to say, we're not facing actual food shortages in Europe. Yes, there may be a little bit less uh, sunflower oil on the shelves, but that's not going to lead to people going hungry in Europe, I mean, any more than they already are. The real problem is about a food affordability. And that is not something really where the Commission has a lot of leeway and a lot of sway over. Actually, last week in the European Parliament, Janusz Wojciechowski, who is the Commissioner for Agriculture, clearly said that there isn't a reason to be scared or worried about uh, food supplies being threatened in Europe.
3: Food security in the European Union is not under threat. However, our food system is facing challenges. For our citizens, not a question of availability but affordability. While there is enough food and uh, in the EU prices are rising.
1: And what are some of the measures that the European Union that European governments are taking or proposing to deal with you know what's going on uh, inside their own borders in their own farms and in their supermarkets and across Europe?
7: I think the headline measure that the European Commission announced is a sort of relaxation of EU environment laws. So up till now, a certain portion of uh, EU farmland has had to be left alone. Basically, no food has been allowed to grow on it. and It's had to be left fallow for the the sake of nature and biodiversity to allow that land to sort of recover and not be uh, covered up in pesticides and fertilizers and all sorts of chemicals. But now, in order to grow more food, that land has been freed up. So farmers all across Europe will have the possibility, if their national governments allow them to, to start planting crops on those lands um, to feed their animals or, or pretty much any crops they, they would like.
1: Right. And I can imagine that's not gone down well with environmental groups.
7: Well, absolutely not. And it's, it's actually quite ironic because before the Ukraine war erupted, Europe had been trying to heave farmers towards a more green future and to make them farm in a more sustainable way. But actually now what the European Commission has done is press pause on a lot of those green rules, even on the most basic green rules that previously existed before the European Green Deal came into the game. So that's worrying a lot of environmentalists who say that, you know, that there could be longer term impacts on the future policy direction of the, of the EU.
1: Right. And what about the farmers groups? Are they happy with the measures that the commission is proposing?
7: I think it's fair to say that a lot of the farmers uh, farmers' lobby groups think that they haven't gone far enough. I think they're they're happy in, in some respects to be allowed to simply grow more food because you know, that's what they love doing and that's what they know how to do best. But uh, they were quite critical on some of the more sort of financial support measures announced by the Commission. For example, fertilisers, the price of fertiliser has absolutely rocketed. And although some farmers have already stocked up on on fertiliser, there wasn't a huge amount in the Commission's package to directly give farmers support for buying fertiliser.
1: Okay, well, this certainly sounds like uh, one to watch. Thanks very much, Eddie. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't already, please take a moment to follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And if you can, leave us a rating or maybe even a review. That helps others to find the show. We always enjoy hearing directly from you, our listeners. You can contact us via email. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Noah Zahn and executive producer Christina Gonzalez. And
2: thanks to you for listening.